Right, and our reading will come up on the screen in a second. It's Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would open our ears this morning to hear what you would wish us to take in. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I, when I was reading and thinking about um, this passage, a particular poem came to mind. And it's this one, it's William Blake. I'll read it to you. O rose, thou art sick, the invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm has found out thy bed of crimson joy and his dark secret love does thy life destroy. Quite a sinister poem in many ways and people have puzzled over the meaning, I think pretty much since it was written trying to interpret the symbolism, what it might mean. You'll find every interpretation from Freudian to feminist if you look on the internet. So this is going to be a very, probably very simplistic reading I'm going to give you today. Um, that, that rose, which seems so beautiful and so perfect when we look at it, is doomed. The worm has secretly burrowed into its heart and is devouring it from within. And the worm loves the rose to eat and hidden away, consuming in the consuming it in the dark, just eats it from inside. It is not always easy to tell from the outside whether something is flourishing or not, is what I take from that. We look around at our little piece of creation here in Cambridge and it looks beautiful to us. Wonderful buildings in the centre of town, countryside kind of inhabiting the town with the river and the green spaces throughout. Wonderful autumnal weather we've had, blue skies, that golden light you see from the sun low in the sky. And yet we read more and more, well we read and hear more and more these days about the growing crisis of climate change. All is not well. Pollution is causing illness in major cities across the world. I read just yesterday that the Great Barrier Reef is facing a major bleaching event this year because of the warming oceans. Fracking, you've probably heard about the earthquakes over the weekend from fracking up in Lincolnshire. Our planet is not well. And scripture is well acquainted with this notion that something can look absolutely fine and dandy from the outside and yet be all wrong in a deeper sense, in a spiritual sense. The book of Revelation, for example, is a prime um, example of this. It's apocalyptic literature. Apocalypto, a bit of Greek for you this morning, uh, means I uncover. So it lifts the veil on reality to let us know what's really going on in the world. And there are a couple of verses in Revelation that describe um, the fall of Babylon, the symbol for worldly power, the city that's the haunt of every foul spirit, as Revelation puts it, the polar opposite of the New Jerusalem. 
And here's the description on our next slide of the reaction to her destruction. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her because no one buys their merchandise anymore. Their gold, silver, jewels and pearls, their fine linen, purple cloth, silk and scarlet cloth, all kinds of things made from expensive wood, ivory, bronze, iron and marble, quantities of the finest cinnamon, spice, incense, frankincense and myrrh, wine, olive oil, wheat and the finest flour, sheep, cattle, horses and chariots and the trafficking of the bodies and souls of people. How beautiful many of the items in that list are. How rich Babylon was, how wonderfully adorned. But then we're brought up short by that last item that poisons all the rest. So this week, we're looking at another of the Bible's many different images for what the human situation is. How are things really? And what the work of Jesus Christ on the cross was and what what it achieved. So last week, we looked at the image of our being beckoned into unity with the divine community of Father, Son, and Spirit. And today, we consider a different picture of the work of Christ, that even though things may seem to be going swimmingly, in fact, humanity has gone astray off the path we should follow. We have sinned, we are ill, and it's through Christ that the healing we need comes about. Now, sin isn't a word that's banded about much these days, um, though we might identify with it a bit more if we paraphrase it a bit, perhaps. Are there times when we realize we've messed up, when we've said or done something afterwards we bitterly wished we hadn't because it's, it's hurt or offended someone else? Are there times when we just haven't managed to live up to whatever standards we've set for ourselves? We've been lazy or disloyal or unfaithful to other people or our principles. Well, if we feel that, then we're in the area of life that the Bible covers with the words sin or transgression or wrongdoing. And we're in the area of life that every human being who's ever been born inhabits at some time or another. But sin is something bigger than just your and my mess ups in life. The Bible depicts it as a kind of malign power, utterly opposed to the things of God. So essentially, there are two realms in the world. There's the one ruled by sin and death, and there's the one ruled by goodness and life. And we all live in one realm or the other, in one kingdom or the other. One's the kingdom of God, and the other is the kingdom of the principalities and powers with Satan at their head. In such a sophisticated company as we're in this morning, I almost feel I should apologize for mentioning the S word, Satan. We don't really talk about Satan very often, do we? But C.S. Lewis um, said there are, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So we'll try and walk the middle way by acknowledging the fact that there are evil powers in the world. God created us to have life and life in all its abundance. And life will burst out amongst Christians and non-Christians alike. God's grace means there's still plenty of, of joy and love around in the world. 
But if we look around us, we also see the power of sin just weaving itself into the structures of the world. We've mentioned climate change, and we're all aware how hard it seems to be to get governments to do anything about it, often because of the interests of big business. Notice it's over the fall of Babylon, it's the merchants who are crying because they've lost their market. Think of the wars we see going on and on in the Middle East, the unimaginable suffering of people in Syria and Yemen caused by power struggles between governments, factions. On another level, through the Me Too movement, we've become aware that widespread abuse of power that spoiled the lives of so many people. This morning, as James has brought to our mind, we're faced with yet another gun crime in America this time against God's chosen people on the Sabbath in a synagogue service. So there's wrongdoing on the part of individuals, of course, but there's also this malign power operating through the systems and structures of this world that magnifies anything individuals can do. As the letter to the Ephesians says, our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. So the result is that humanity is suffering, is ill, or at the very least not flourishing as we might because of sin on a human and a cosmic scale. So that's one image of our plight. We are ill. We're unwell. And there's another image that the Bible gives us of our plight on an individual level. And because it's um, very much from an agrarian environment, it's the image of the sheep that's wandered off from the flock. There it is. Now, my brother-in-law, Frank, who's the son of a farmer, has a very jaundiced view of sheep. He's quite a jaundiced view of a lot of things, really, but sheep as well. He says that all sheep basically have a death wish and their, and their sole ambition in life is to die in a way as expensive and inconvenient to the farmer as they can possibly manage. <laughs> Those of you who, who, have, who know anything about sheep may, may, may see the truth in this. Now I'm not sure that that's all completely transferable to the human situation but the image in our Isaiah passage at the end and, and very much in Jesus' teaching in the Gospels is of the human situation, the human plight of a sheep who wanders off from the shepherd and therefore makes it vulnerable to the wolf or to accident or to injury. And of course, it's a picture of an animal that really belongs in a herd being isolated and alone. And last week, we, we mentioned the epidemic of loneliness here in the West, now attracting government attention because of the illness it causes. So two images of the human situation. One is like that we're like sheep, and the other is that we're ill because of sin. And we can't rescue ourselves. As Paul says in Romans, I can will what is right, but I can't do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And the good news is that we don't have to rescue ourselves. 
God has initiated the rescue mission in the form of, in the person of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. And in Luke, he says, the son of man came to seek out and to save the lost. And that's where we find Jesus if we read about him in the Gospels. Amongst people who are sick, tormented by demons, both literally and by mental and physical illnesses. Amongst people who have messed up their lives, who have taken the wrong turn, like Zacchaeus, who collected taxes for the occupying power and cut himself off from his own people. Amongst people who are cut off from life, like the woman with the, with the hemorrhage, with the flow of blood. This is a mosaic um, representation of her. Shows very nicely the crowd behind, behind Jesus. You know the story, perhaps she's been ill for 12 years with a flow of blood that means life has been on hold for her. She can't take part in any religious ceremonies, she's unclean. She can't marry. If she was married when this condition came on, she can't have children. Disastrous for a woman in the first century. She hears of Jesus and thinks to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his clothes, I'll be made well. So she follows him and manages to get close enough to him in the crowd to touch the hem of his robe. And Jesus feels it. The woman is healed from, from that moment and Jesus feels power leave him. And we get a tiny insight there into the cost of it all for Jesus. We imagine perhaps that healing people for Jesus is effortless. They all queue up and he just lays hands on them one after another. But this woman, this one woman, just touches the edge of his clothes and he feels that power has gone out from him. But Jesus was not sent just to heal the few hundred or thousand people he came across in Galilee and Judea. He came to offer healing and life to all humanity, including you and me today. And for this, there was an even greater cost. This could only be achieved by his pouring out his life on the cross. 1 Peter says, you are, you are ransomed not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. By his wounds, you've been healed. All these images, these metaphors are just that, pictures to try to convey what happened on the cross. Jesus was wounded so that we might be whole. He died so that we might live. He came looking for us so that we could be safe with the shepherd again. Let's look at that passage from 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that dead to sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were going astray like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And there's hope too for our sick planet. As Paul says in Romans, hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
So we are all, as the hymn says, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. What does this mean going forward for our life in Christ? Well, we're, we're dead as far as sin is concerned so that we can be alive as far as righteousness is concerned. We can be fully given to everything that is good, true, just, pure. How does this work itself out in our lives? That would be a whole other sermon. But this is what Jesus said when he was asked by a scribe. One of the scribes came up and said to him, which commandment is the first of all? In other words, you know, what's, what's, what is righteousness? What do I do to be righteous? And Jesus answered, the first is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The Lord has healed us. He's come to find us. And in return, all we're asked to do is love. Amen. Let's pray.